The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 2. That's where we are today. We are continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. And every week we are looking to these pages to answer this overarching question. Who is this man? Ask anyone the question, who is Jesus? And they will surely have an answer for you. But we want to ask the scriptures this question and let this book answer and inform our answer, our understanding. As a church, we say we are centered in Christ, don't we? We say that we are centered in Christ, and so we need to know just who this man is. We've said this before, that Christ is the secret of our success. He is the source of our success. He is the supervisor of our success. His presence is what we are after. Abiding in Christ is what we proceed under. His promise to build the church is the guarantee which we operate under. Not our own effort, not our own uh, crafty abilities, just simply in Christ's sacrificial work on our behalf and his promise to build this church. Christ is the preeminent one. He is the head of the church. He is the boss. He is the one whom we submit to and serve under. And you know, it has been really a joy to watch God's spirit work in your life, especially through chapter one. You know, it's been a joy to to see us as God's people see who Christ is and watch that transforming work happen in your hearts. I can only imagine what, as we journey through all 16 chapters of this, yeah, it's like, you think we're in chapter two and we've got like 14 more to go. Yeah, we've got, got a ways to go yet. And so we'll be in it a while, but it'll be a joy to watch God's spirit work in you. Because this is what God's word does to the willing heart. He grows our understanding of who Christ is. He grows our affection for Christ. God's word grows our activity for Christ. Not as a means to earn his favor, right? But as a means to serve and Submit to him so that others would know the great love of Christ. God's word does this in our willing hearts. To the unwilling, Christ is a stumbling block, an offense, and he creates conflict. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what happens in Mark chapter 2 and 3. Up until this point in chapter 1, Mark has been putting before us the authority of Jesus Christ. His authority over salvation. His authority over our sanctification. His authority over the spiritual realm. His authority over sickness and disease. And today we'll see his authority over sin. And anytime a message like this comes, it creates conflict. And what Mark does now in chapters 2 and 3 is he, give, he shows us really five collisions with the scribes and the Pharisees, those that were the religious elite of those days that were opposed to his authority. And so today in our section, we'll cover two of these collisions, both involving who Jesus is as the sin forgiver. So turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 2, and I want to read for us the first 17 verses. You can follow along as I read it for us now. Hear God's word. It says this, Mark 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, that's Jesus, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. 
and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." This is God's word for God's people. See, because God alone forgives sin, that's our theme here in this passage. Because God alone forgives our sin, let's get into the details of this passage and see this first section. Because God alone forgives our sin, bring your friends to Christ. Bring your friends to Christ. Look here with me at verse 1 of chapter 2. Jesus is back in Capernaum after he went on his preaching tour throughout the region of Galilee. Remember, that's what he said before. Last week, as we were in chapter 1, great many things happened in Capernaum, but then he set out and was preaching around to the various villages in that region, and now he's come back. Capernaum is going to uh, operate kind of like Jesus' headquarters, It's his base of operations for his early years of ministry. And it says there, he's back at Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home, likely Peter's house here. If uh, Capernaum is his headquarters, then Peter's house is his office. All right, he comes back here, and he's in there. And look what happens. Crowds continue to come. There's standing room only once word gets out that Jesus is here. And now, just like that night, that one weekend that we looked at last week, the crowds are back. See, I don't think Peter knew exactly what he was getting into when he invited Peter over to his house after church that one weekend. Remember that? He invites him over, then the crowds come that night, and now he's back, and now people are flocking here. And beloved, let me just point out something. This is what Jesus does. He, when Jesus intrudes into your life, it becomes intrusive. And it's just like everything is given over to him. Your house becomes his. Your life becomes his. And as you are introducing and bringing your friends to Christ, it will draw people in. This is Jesus' style. It's what he does. He's just intrusive. 
But what is he doing here? It's been reported. There's many together. There's no room. And look at the end of verse 2. What is he doing? He's preaching the word. Just like he said he was going to do, right? Just that he, he met with the father. He abided in him. He reprioritized. I am on a preaching mission. And this is exactly what he is doing here as he said he was. He hasn't strayed from his priority. And he's preaching the word of God. Not just opinions, not just uh, uh, f- clever sayings. He's preaching the word. And in verses 3 and 4 then, you get the picture of what, the, what Jesus is doing here. But in verses 3 and 4 now, you get this biblical picture of committed friendships. Don't these four men love this paralyzed friend? Look at the lengths that they go to get their friend to Christ. The doorway is blocked. The house is packed tighter than a sardine can. And this committed friendship gets creative. It gets creative. Houses in those days, you maybe have seen pictures of it or have heard it described in other places, but likely just kind of a square blocked house. And then the roof would have been made by setting heavy timbers kind of at equal distances across the walls on the top. And then on those, on those timbers, then they would have laid like brush and branches and different things like that to kind of form a mat, an interwoven mat above that. And then they would have taken dirt or sod and laid that across the top. So much so, like if it rained and all that stuff, grass would grow, all those things. And all said, the roof was about two feet thick. It's heavy to keep the rain out and all those things. And, uh, and along the side of the house, then there was uh, either a ladder or some stairs to get to the roof of the house. And these four men, they loved their friend. They knew they needed to get him to Christ. They had heard the stories. Maybe they had encountered people that had themselves been healed of their disease and sickness. Others that had heard his preaching. And they are bringing their friend. The doorway is packed. They can't get in. And so they get creative. They were convinced that Jesus had the answer for this man's disease. Can you imagine being in there? Can you imagine being the men that were in the house and all of a sudden you're hearing Jesus preach and then, then like dirt and branches and little sticks start to shower them? I mean, just imagine being in a house for like time out for a second. Like we maybe feel like we're packed. Imagine being packed in a little house like this. The smell of like fish and stinky flesh and, and everything. It's just the air is close in there and Jesus is preaching and they're all tight in. And, and then now like they're getting a dirt shower on their head and all this stuff. And, and just imagine the hullabaloo that's happening because of this. And in verse five, does Jesus get really angry that somebody is interrupting his preaching? No, no, he rather responds with shocking compassion. Look what he says. Jesus sees their faith and he says to the paralytic, look at, look at the tenderness again in his voice. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Like Jesus is preaching the word and all these things are happening. The crowds are here and now there's this disruption. Jesus doesn't get angry. He rather has compassion He observes the confident faith of this man's friends and he gives the paralytic that type of faith too. They were convinced that Christ was capable and they would not be deterred. And then Jesus does a more miraculous work than making this man walk. He forgives this man's sins. It's astounding. It's astounding. 
And you know, here's the thing, beloved, that this man's condition, this paralytic's condition, mirrors the condition of every human. He was completely unable to get himself to Jesus. Try as he might, there was no getting well on his own. He could not move. He could not get anywhere. Completely helpless. And instead, Christ came to him and used his messengers, who were also this man's friends, to bring him to Christ. Beloved, bring your friends to Jesus. They cannot get there on their own. They cannot get there on their own. We could not get there on our own. Get them to where the word is being preached. Get creative if you have to. It may take effort. It may, there may be obstacles. It may cost you dearly. But there is no greater investment that you will make than to love your friends to life. If they are willing, if they will go, take them all the way to Christ. Let these four convinced undeterred people remind us again of where we find our hope and our help and our healing in Jesus Christ. Who was it that brought you to faith? Who is the friend, the, the family member, the person who loved you enough to bring you and introduce you to the one who changed your life? The person who loved you to life. Praise the Lord for them. Thank God that he put those influences, those friends, those people in your life. That somebody, somebody cared enough to love you to life. But this really brings us then to the next point, to where the, where the passage continues. Because God alone forgives our sin, we must worship Christ for who he is and what he does. We should worship Christ for who he is and what he does. Look at, look at in verse six here. Now the, the, the scene has shifted. The camera has gone. That you see what Christ is doing. Now these men, now this person that's been healed. And now in verse six, the, the camera shifts over to these scribes who are like sitting over in the corner all grumpy like. You see this? You see it? Now some of the scribes, they're sitting there and they're questioning in their hearts. And you can see them just kind of back in there, all this stuff going on. They're kind of got a scowl on their face. They're not saying anything, but the contempt is obvious in their manner of life and in their heart that God here, Christ, can see. And as I mentioned in our intro, here's that first collision with Jesus' authority. Here's this first collision with Jesus' authority. They're questioning in their heart. See, the scribes believe this. They believe Jesus is not God. But Jesus is coming and saying, yes, I am, and I'll prove it. Yes, I am, and I will prove it. See, see, they did not believe that Jesus was the boss. They thought they were. They were the spiritual authority. And now Jesus is coming preaching as one who has authority. He's coming in and doing these miracles, something, a, a power that they have never seen. And they're saying, in their, they're in their hearts, Jesus isn't God. Who is this man? You see, see it in verse six here, or verse seven? They're questioning in their hearts. They say, why does this man speak like that? You know, he's blaspheming. That's a serious charge. He, they understand that he's claiming to be God. Only God can forgive sins. They weren't wrong in that. What they were wrong is that Jesus isn't God. And Jesus, in the only way he can do it, he does a Jesus juke. You familiar with those? Just like Jesus juke. You don't think I'm God? Yeah, I am. Let me prove it. I'm going to heal this man. I'm going to forgive his sin. It's a collision. It's a collision here of two opposing views. 
And Jesus always wins. They're questioning internally, but Jesus questions openly. They're, they're fuming, and here Jesus is just simply responding with good, heart-penetrating questions. He answers them in two ways in verse 10, doesn't he? His answer to them, they're questioning who's this, and he's saying, I'm, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to heal this man. I'm going to forgive him. And in verse 10, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the paralytic, verse 11, now I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He answers them. He says, you want to know who I am? I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. And they right then, they were scribes. They knew the Old Testament law. They knew what the scripture taught. And this is a reference straight to Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. The Son of Man is a name given to the Messiah. It's a title. It's interesting. It's the one that Jesus uses the most of himself, how he references himself in Mark the most. And it's a reference back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I want to read it. You can look it up and read some more of the context this afternoon. But Daniel, having a vision, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Just referring to his humanity, but also to his deity. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and which will, shall, not, shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus answers their accusation. He says, yes, I am. I am the son of man. And what can I do? What can I do? I can forgive sins and heal infirmities here on earth. And in verse 12, look, at, he responds this way. And then something awesome happens. Something awesome happens. The man that came in through the roof skips out the door. The same God that parted the Red Sea to let his children through parts this packed crowd in this house so that this redeemed, saved man can walk out before their very eyes. And what are they? They're amazed. And they glorify God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Anybody ever seen anything like that? And this is mind-blowing. Do you know this is what we try to do every single Sunday? Every single time we gather as God's people to put before you the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we order our worship, our services the way that we do. So that you can worship, you can sing, pray, hear from God, about God. That you can, that, that you can be enamored with the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're not here for us. We're here for God. Let's not get distracted from our purpose as we come to worship Christ for who he is and what he does. That's what they do. That's the right response as they see this work of Christ because God alone can forgive our sins. We must worship God in Christ Jesus for who he is and what he does. This is the right response. This is amazing, beloved, isn't it? This is, this is a phenomenal as we think of what Christ has done, let it, let it fuel our worship. But our worship isn't just a Sunday thing, though, is it? It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But because God alone forgives our sin, here's where it goes next. We, we follow Christ on mission. This is where the next scene takes us. We follow Christ on mission. If Sunday worship is the fuel in our tank to, for the week ahead, you know, if, and if we miss, we just run on fumes. Have you ever been in a car when you, and you didn't fill up your tank? 
causes anxiety and fear. Like, I don't know when the next one is. I, I, well, I know when it is. I don't know if I can make it to it. So if this worship is the fuel in our tank, we also, we follow Christ, though. We worship him all throughout the week. And so look at this next section here, beginning in verse 13. See, Jesus is in the crowd. He's there. He's forgiving sin. He's proclaiming that he is the sin forgiver. One man has been radically healed. Their worship has increased. And in verse 13, Jesus needs to take a break, huh? He goes, he escapes the crowded house for a little seaside stroll, for a little deep breath, a walk along the beach. Is that what he's doing? Look at verse 13. He's out along the sea and he's all by himself. No, all the crowd is coming to him again, right? He cannot go anywhere. He cannot be left alone. They're coming to him, so he stays on course. And what does he do? He teaches them. He teaches them. It's likely here, this is the account of the Sermon on the Mount. But all we get Mark, remember, Mark shows us his priority that he had come to preach, but he gives us very little content like Matthew does. I think there's a reason Matthew includes the whole Sermon on the Mount, all those three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7, into 8, because Matthew is one who is radically transformed here. He remembers Jesus first, this Sermon on the Mount. He remembers the content, but Mark hones in on the impact. Mark is on the impact of the people. And so he's teaching them, and look, he passes by and he sees Levi or Matthew. It's another name, same guy. Matthew, the same guy that wrote the first gospel. You know, we have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus encounters this man who becomes a disciple. But before he, but before he writes a gospel, before he becomes a follower of Christ, he was one bad dude. He was one bad dude. It, it doesn't give him much, much context here, but he was a tax collector. Are you familiar with the reputation of tax collectors? If you've been around you know, church, you might have heard this. I, I was trying to rack my brain this week, and I can't really even think of a cultural equivalent to somebody that was a tax collector in those days. Because these, these guys were like, they, they had all the authority of the law behind them, but without the authority of the law around them or the accountability of the law around them. See, they were, they were hired contractors. Tax collectors of that day, they were hired by the government to collect taxes from the people. And so the government would go to a person and say, okay, um, there's this many people, so we expect this percentage of taxes, and I'm not going to bore you with all the tax codes. You're already in the midst of that. Maybe you filed your taxes. Maybe you haven't. You've got like one month left to do it. So I won't bore you with that, but the, but the, the main thing is, is that they would hire out and say, okay, there's this many people, you need to collect this, this amount. And so that tax collector would be responsible to give to the government that much, and then they could really employ any means possible to extort that from the people. Ah, oh, this person, I'll take this person, I'll take this percentage, and they would just go so that way they could collect it. And whatever was over and above what they owed the government, it was theirs. It was theirs. And what makes this even worse is that Matthew or Levi was one of them. This wasn't a Roman. He was a Jewish man, a Hebrew. He was a traitor. One of their very own that was now uh, extorting from the people without, without scruple. And Jesus looks at him, the most unlikely person and summons him. Follow me. Beloved, what did we see a couple weeks ago? When Jesus summons, we go. 
we go. When Christ calls us from death to life, we respond. And this man immediately, he rose, he left behind his immoral business, and he follows Christ. He follows Christ. He becomes a disciple. Jesus summons, he follows Christ, then right on mission, right on into his own house. Look where verse 15, he, he follows him. He invites Jesus over. We know what happens when, that, when you do that, right? Peter saw it. You invite Jesus over to your house, and, and it just, things get intrusive. He invites him over, and he invites all of his friends over for a meal. Brothers and sisters, never underestimate the power of hospitality and the potential for ministry around your dinner table. If you, as you read through the Gospels, Christ did some of his most amazing ministry here in houses, around a dinner table, over a shared meal, inviting the most unlikely people to dine with him. Don't underestimate this. How much ministry has he been doing from a home? A lot. Follow Christ. Follow Christ on mission. Open your doors to what one commentator calls as we read through this. I love this. It's one, it's just clever. But he says, he opens his doors to the seemingly unlikely, the socially undesirable, and the spiritually unhealthy. That's who's there at his table. And what do they do? They bless them. They bless. He, Jesus blesses them with a meal, by hearing them, by dining with them. And this is, this, maybe you've heard this before. I love this acronym. You want to be equipped to love people? You want to be equipped to serve people? Do you want to follow Christ on mission by now that you've been saved, now that you've been brought near to Christ, you want to invite people in? Here's a, here's a really helpful thing. You can bless people. And it's an acronym for this. Begin with prayer. You can bless people. You want to be equipped. You want a, a strategy for how to draw people near to be able to share Christ with your friends, begin with prayer. Pray that God will give you a heart for it. Pray that God would, would, would change your desires, that he would alleviate your fears. And then begin by listening. See, we bring our friends and then we just want to like, sometimes beat them over the head with Christ, right? Just listen. Listen, hear the concerns of their heart. Share a meal with them. That's the E. Begin with prayer, listen, and then eat a meal. Invite them over. Invite them into your space. And as you are listening and as you're eating, then serve them. Serve them as they're in your house, but also as you're listening. What are the cares on their heart? What are the things that they're going through? What are very specific small ways that you or even your small group could serve this person? Trials that they're going through. And then share the story of how Christ has changed your life. As you gain a hearing, as you bless them, then share the story of what Christ has done for sinful humans and how they can be a part of it. This is a very simple way as we bless people. This isn't unique to me. A pastor named Dave Ferguson has put this out. And it's his acronym, and it, I, I find it so helpful. So we just want to be a people who bless others. But as you do this, be prepared for the second collision. As you do this, be prepared for this second collision. Look, what, look what, how the scribes respond to this in verse 16. See, the scribes, they're mad because they believe only the good and respectable are eligible for salvation. But what does Jesus say? Only sinners are eligible for salvation. 
The scribes believe this, and this causes a collision. They're, they're saying this time out loud, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know? Now he's unclean. Does he not know these people's reputation? Does he not know who these people hang out with? Does he not know what these people do? You better believe he does. He knows what all of us do. And he is confronting in this very act of blessing these people, he is confronting this unbiblical belief that only the good and respectable are eligible for salvation when Jesus is saying only sinners are eligible for salvation. See, beloved, our sin is the only thing that qualifies us for salvation. Our sin is the only thing that we bring to this proverbial table. Our sin is the only thing that we come with, and Jesus serves and provides everything else. It was his death, it was his sacrifice that even brought us here, that made a way that he now introduces us to the Father. Christ does everything else. See, all of us here, I just mentioned this, but all of us either are right now or once were seemingly unlikely candidate for salvation. A tax collector. Or we were socially undesirable. We were, we were the lower caste. We were that person. We were one that wasn't, weren't going to be famous. We weren't the best. Or we came spiritually unhealthy, the self-righteous. All of us come likely in one of these categories or some combination of all of them. And see, the beautiful thing is that Christ comes. He comes to all of these and summons, follow me. Follow me. Is Christ doing that in your heart this morning? You realize that yeah, I, I, all I've got is sin to offer this table. I'm not, I'm not a perfect one. I don't have this all figured out. I, 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 if these people knew what I did last night, they'd never be my friend. And Christ, if he is calling you, if he is compelling you, if he is saying, follow me, then respond to him and you will find the forgiveness and grace and the mercy that only Christ can offer. He will draw you near. He is drawing near to you. Draw near to him. Respond. Respond. Leave it behind and follow him. This is what he does. See, all of us were here. All of us maybe think that we have it. We thought we grew up in church. We're like the scribes. We're like the Pharisees. We grew up around it. We can quote Bible verses. We've, we've memorized things. We've got catechisms memorized. Christ is saying that doesn't save you. You come to me on my terms. Your sin may be self-righteousness. Christ says, I'm merciful enough to save even that person. Which one of these do you fear? Maybe you've come to Christ. And the command to follow him, the command to follow him on mission, you're saying to yourself, I could never be friends with that person. I, I just, I, they, they just have too many problems. I don't want them around my kids. I just, the, the influence that they might have. And we fear the power of the gospel. We don't believe the power of the gospel, rather. And we fear their sin is greater than what Christ can do. Jesus, forgive us for that. Church, Jesus is the sin forgiver, isn't he? 
We all come from various backgrounds. We've all struggled with a variety of sins. But there is one Savior. There is one sin forgiver. See, we're not defined by our sin, are we? We're not defined by our past. Those things aren't, aren't attached to our core identity. But when we come to Christ, we are a Christ follower. And that supersedes any of those things that we've done, any identities that we've attached to us. But when we are in Christ, if, if in fact we have repented and believed. We're in Christ. And how do we celebrate that shared unity? How do we celebrate that common identity that Christ gives us? How do we celebrate that amazing forgiveness as a church? What did Jesus himself give us to remember that very fact, this amazing God-glorifying act that Christ has done to win us for salvation? What has he done to purchase forgiveness, to ransom us from the penalty of our sin, from the wrath of God. What has he done? What do we do? What do we, how do we remember and celebrate this? Through the Lord's table, through communion, right? That is our celebration. By We remember the sacrifice that made it happen through Jesus' death. And so what a way to respond to what we've just heard this morning. What a way to celebrate and to worship together as we share in communion together. I want to call our worship team up. We're going to prepare in this way, but and as we do, I just want to explain